Michael Waits Media, telling Asia's stories. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are joined by Yan Li, founder and managing partner at Hive Ventures. And it's great to have you on the show today. How are you doing? I'm great. Really excited to be here. Thanks, Michael. It is my pleasure. And before we jump into the main topics, let's give our listeners a little bit of your background for context. Thanks. I'm Yen. Uh, I was born and raised in Singapore, but I'm fully Taiwanese. And that pretty much describes how I've spent uh, the past three decades of my life and more traveling through Southeast Asia, China and Europe uh, for school and work as an entrepreneur. And finally decided to come home in Taiwan where there's so much activity in terms of startup technology and AI. And so we've founded companies, took it public on NASDAQ, and now we're back home to really foster a next wave of technopreneurs out here in Taiwan. Wait, so you you personally founded a company that listed on NASDAQ? Yeah, so uh, me and my two founders at Hive, the three of us met in 2007 while doing uh, our MBA in Shanghai and uh, just decided to take that plunge build a big data company, uh, merged with a much bigger shop in 2015 after almost being going bankrupt uh, probably 18 times. <laughs> and finally, we, we found the right product market fit. We, we grew and we merged. And finally, together, we took that company public in NASDAQ in 2017. That was the last bell to ring on NASDAQ that year, too. What was that experience like? I don't know anybody else that's listed a company on NASDAQ. I mean, there are plenty of people that list companies on the Mother's Exchange in Japan, and that's great, but that's more like a funding round as opposed to an IPO per se. Like, I know what IPO stands for, and yeah, I get it. But you know what I mean, right? What was that experience like? So I think anyone at, at iClick or NASDAQ and SEC back in December 2017 will tell you it was probably the most challenging and daunting IPO in NASDAQ history. Why? Especially for us, it was especially difficult, but it doesn't represent everyone who's gone public, but it was a, it was a great experience to, to have had our bulge bracket bankers unable to do our IPO less than six months before we were supposed to ring the bell. Uh, and then having bankers who are unable to complete the transaction. And then finally, while everyone was Christmas shopping in Times Square on Fifth Avenue, we were shopping for a banker to take us public. <laughs> oh my God. We had all the subscriptions. We had all the support from investors. We just needed a FINRA license. That was it. And uh, we finally, I think we broke NASDAQ history by from handshake, banker handshake, to the initial listing, it was four days. So probably the fastest in history as well. Wow. What a harrowing experience. Because in, in, in certain senses, right, if you're an entrepreneur, there's a lot of stuff that's out of your control, but there are a lot of things you can control, right? That's one of the great things about building your own company is that while you, there's always someone to whom you have to answer, there are fewer people probably if you're building your own stuff. But at some point, once you start to go public, that whole concept of, uh-oh, this thing's out of my hands, like you can't fix everything. And that's, that's what an entrepreneur does. It sees a problem and fixes it. Precisely. It, it's, uh, so it, we, we are operators by training. Right. Um, sure, all of the management team, we're all MBAs, but, but you don't learn this stuff in an MBA, right? <laughs> and, and actually, in the wise words of our entire 
auditor and, and legal team with their hundreds of years of IPO experience, it's basically Murphy's law. Never, never, never has anyone had that, but like you said, right, it, it, it was a great learning experience. So we were just fixing problem after problem. And, uh, and I would say IPO is just from a bigger picture of things. It is the least of our problems. If you look back, being a public company exposes us to yeah. a whole new set of challenges and learning opportunities. And then that's also why we wanted to take these war stories and experiences back into early, early startup space where really it's where we find ourselves most fulfilled. You know, I worked on the other side for years, right? So I worked at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and whatever for mm -hmm. like 20, 22 years, more, probably 25, right? And this idea of watching private companies like yours go public was always weird to me because I just always wondered why anybody would want to be a public company and take all the scrutiny <laughs> that went along with it. Right, whether it was Sarbanes-Oxley or any of the new rules that came along while I was working, it just seemed like a weird thing to want to do. I get the fact that like you can exit and make a lot of money, but it just seemed because running a pro like we talked about this earlier, running a private company, you're mostly in control. And when you're running a public company, it's all this filings and all these sharehold, all that kind of stuff. Right, it's just a very different animal. Yeah, is that fair? Uh, it, it definitely is. I think. Today, now that I'm on the other side of the table, I asked the very same question to all the startups that are articulating their vision of an exit. I'm like, really, is IPO really the only way out? Or is yeah. it just a very good answer to put in an investor deck to, to wild investors, right? But I mean, looking back, I think I, across all the, the partners at, at uh, the company, we had different motivations for doing this, but there were incidents right before that filing that really challenged us whether or not this was the route we needed to go down. There are other avenues of raising big buckets of cash to, to fuel our expansion. But for us specifically, I wanted to prove a point. And so that, so that our team, right, we were basically Taiwan and Hong Kong's first software, homegrown software startup to be listed on NASDAQ. And we wanted to prove a point that kids off the streets in Taiwan and Hong Kong could do the very same thing. It, it's not that far away. It's not. And ever since we've done that, we've seen spats, we've seen more and more listings, and that's the fire we want to light, you know, prove a point. We're, we're, we don't think we're the smartest kids in the class, you know, uh, we're, we're not the smartest guys in the room necessarily, but if we could do it, so could a lot of other people. We're not the smartest guys in the room is an interesting thing to say, but you're in the room. And I think that that's actually more important than being the smartest guys or gals in the room is just being in that room, however you define that, right? And there's a tendency for not people like I am, but people in my position to say to you, okay, well, that's great. What did you learn from that experience? But I'm not going to ask that because I think it's really situational. But I think you have all this knowledge and experience, but it only becomes relevant when you see something where you're dealing with a startup and you say, wait a second. Here's what happened to me at that point in time. And now something in your brain gets triggered. So there's not like a list of like 15 things. And I, I've started to formulate this idea, like the non-dogmatic approach to startups, right? Which is why I won't ask you that question. And that is, you know, what did you learn? Because you can't tell me because you don't know until that thing comes up again. You're like, oh, I get it. I'm not supposed to do X or I should think about Y kind of thing. Is that also fair? Yes, we often say that there are probably a million and one ways to fail on your, on your entire entrepreneurial journey, 
we have the benefit of, you know, encountering probably a thousand and one, right? right? So there, there's still, you know, 999,000 problems out there that you can run to. But, but I will always come back to one single point, the fortitude of the management team. Yeah. Our 1001 problems that we had could be a blueprint of things to avoid, but at the same time, everyone's case is unique exactly. and it really just takes the fortitude of the management, the wisdom and of everyone who's in the boardroom and in the team to just navigate with the collective wisdom. Yeah. I mean, this idea of just not giving up when you know you're right and even learning the things that you have to do when you figure out that you're wrong. I think the biggest learning that I have is that anybody who's telling you that there are five easy steps to raise capital or five easy steps to list your <laughs> thing, all that kind of stuff and insert any insert your favorite pejorative word for the word stuff um, as you see fit but all that stuff is wrong just by definition because as you said there are so many different combinations and permutations of things that can happen that just having a list of things to do is only going to get you in trouble as far as i'm concerned agree okay Let's talk about Hive Ventures. You go through this idea, you build your own stuff, you have a team of founders that, that work on these things, you're having all these experiences, and then you say, let's actually start investing now. And, and here's my question, and this is based on my personal experience. I was a limited f partner in a fund called Ardent Capital, and the Ardent Capital guys had built a few companies along the way, but they're most famous before today, really, was a company called Insogo. And it was a daily deal site, which they built really quickly, sold to Living Social. It was a great story. But they were tired because they were working for like 10 years building this and that and this and that. And then they're just like, okay, we're going to raise a fund and use some of the money that we've earned and just invest in the things that we know are going to grow. And the more they looked at companies, the more they realized it's annoying to watch people build bad stuff <laughs> since we're so much better at building. And they just went, screw it. We're going to start building again. Like, how do you look at this as a team? Because you said you're all operators, right? So you want to go down and just be like, give me that screwdriver, but you can't. Right. One of our advisors, mentors, and LPs, before we took the plunge, when we were still toying with this idea, we, we asked him because he went down the exact same route. So he's a successful entrepreneur, nine times a successful entrepreneur, turned VC and a very successful VC at that. And, and he said, you know, are you ready to step down from a quarterback position at your prime right. to coach? Right. Really? That, that's going to be your biggest challenge because yeah. you, you're not going to be the front seat driver anymore, but do you want to be a backseat one? And what, what persona do you want to play in this process, right? right? So many have asked us this question, but we really don't see ourselves as stepping away from building product because we are tired of it. We're, we're still very excited. We build products with our portfolio companies every day. So that's why we love being in the pre-seed seed stage where we can shape what we're doing, but but at a at a bigger scale. Now we have... 14, 15 portfolios that we're simultaneously working with and people who are younger, smarter, more energetic and passionate and still allowing us to, to work with them to really craft something that we can take beyond just Taiwan. So I, I think there's a lot of energy in the room. There's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work. I do not by any means think that early stage investing is any 
less tiring than being a startup entrepreneur in, in many senses. <laughs> Maybe it's better for the slightly better in terms of the heartache, but still it, it's, it's a full-time job. Yeah. I mean, again, I want to go back and just say, I was not suggesting that you and your team were tired at all. That wasn't, oh, yeah, I understand. Yeah. but I also want to address this too. This idea of like the heartbreak is less, I don't know. Do you have any kids? Because if you watch your kids like fall in love and then break up or fail at something, there's pretty serious heartbreak there. And I think that you can look at the investments that you make in these early stage startups as kind of like your babies in a way. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't I, make a value judgment about that pain. Go ahead. I think uh, I, I am a dad, uh, not a very experienced one, but yes, I am one. And uh, again, another learning experience. And then after I became a parent, then I realized one thing, right? So as a parent, there are a lot of pains that you're growing pains that you're going to share with your kid. Yep. But at the same time, you're not going to be able to experience it firsthand. Correct. Like, like they do. Right. So, but it, it's going to be a different kind of heartache. You know that you're going to fall off a cliff if you go down that route. I am 98% sure. Right. But, but you just got to have to, you know, walk them through that pain, pick up, pick ourselves up, both the team and us, and then keep going. Right. But it, it's a different kind of heartache. Definitely keeps us up at night. But I would say the frontline guys still have it the worst. Right. They're the ones who have to deal yeah. with paying the employees and keeping the business afloat. Yeah. And I would submit to you that seed stage, early stage, call it whatever you'd like, is the hardest part of the investment curve, because fundamentally and tell me where I'm wrong here. You're just funding an experiment. You don't know if it's going to work yet. And exactly. And my favorite my favorite line from seed stage investors to startup founders is like, tell me what kind of traction you have and what's your cost of acquisition and all this stuff that's really only appropriate for series A investments. We can, there's a nuanced way to talk about this, but I mean, at scale, it really just means that that person's not like a seed stage investor <laughs> because, because when you're investing in a series A company, you're investing in growth. And when you're investing in series B and C, you're investing in accelerating that growth. So just very different metrics. Fully agree, um, but I, we also see that uh, Taiwan, which um, you know, over the past decades, Taiwan actually started very early as a, from a VC scene perspective because we've had early successes in technology. Right. So after that, there has been a lot of angels uh, supporting that ecosystem while the VCs have moved on to a later stage. Right. So when we first came back to Taiwan, almost everyone in the VC space or in the startup side of the table telling us Taiwan has no startups. There aren't investable deals in Taiwan. And then we realized because they're asking the exact same questions you, you mentioned. Exactly. How much revenue are you getting? What's your EBITDA right now? Nothing. You know, are, are, what, uh, are you profitable? What's your EPS? <laughs> right? uh, really? At Series A even? You yeah. know, but, yeah. but I, I think things have changed so much. The entire landscape, even in the US, everyone's moving earlier and earlier and earlier. Right. Everyone's writing tickets faster, faster and faster. So I think it's less of those questions, but really, how do you find the entrepreneurs with a track record? And for us, we can allow kind of more threshold in, in, in terms of founders with uh, prior experience or not, because we're able to operate with them together with the corporate partners and the, the LP networks, our business networks that we have. We can then incubate this, these businesses out here and try to shape them in that experiment, as you mentioned, in this early stage. And hopefully 
you know, set the course right or generally in the right direction from onset, and then we'll see how it goes. Okay, so most most venture capital companies don't have corporate partners. So you forced me to ask you this. How is Hive Ventures different than other VC companies? And was it purposeful? Was it environmentally driven, meaning not ESG, but environmentally driven, meaning the Taiwan ecosystem was just different? Like, what's going on here? You, you hit uh, so many good points, right? One, I think fundamentally Taiwan's economic structure is very different from, I would say, where we're, everyone's more familiar in the U.S. or in the U.K. Taiwan is the land of manufacturing. It is still the manufacturing backyard for many different types of industries, especially in semiconductor and in PCB, SMT, electronics manufacturing. I, I think that that is one. And we have some of the world's largest corporates, conglomerates in manufacturing headquartered out here in Taiwan, and they're looking for new innovation, looking to push the paradigm for, for their own businesses who are more and more being classified under traditional manufacturing. So there is a lot of that. However, on the flip side, we don't have a lot of globally renowned internet companies that can fuel, you know, software and just AI or point solutions for, you know, on the cloud. Uh, there are a lot of nuances in the ecosystem here, but we see a lot of similarities between Taiwan and the rest of Asia. There are a lot of experienced businesses that are, that are quietly very uh, established, but uh, are looking for new avenues for growth. So we see an opportunity there and we don't necessarily try to be different from other VCs. I think it also comes from our personal background as operators. So we've been working with some of the well-known uh, corporates uh, around the world in, in the, the, the sectors that I just mentioned to bridge that gap between them and our portfolio or even startups at large. We are not exclusive to our own portfolios. Anyone that can help these businesses achieve digital transformation, as you like to call it, or digitalization yeah. or AI plus, everyone's looking for something to plug into their ecosystem. And I think there are a lot the startup ecosystem can, can offer. So we're that bridge in between and try to solve real world problems. Look, one of the idiosyncrasies that I see in Thailand, which is where I live, about the startup ecosystem here is that a lot of the companies look only internally. So they'll start up here and think, how can I build this technology or that technology for, for this country? But it's not big enough. I mean, Thailand is bigger than Taiwan, but seriously, the difference between 25 million people and 70 million people, it's a push, right? And I would submit to you as well that Taiwan is way more international in some ways than, than Thailand is, right? Just through some historical relationships. But mm -hmm. how do you convince your companies, mostly the ones domiciled locally, yeah, that they have to have a global view on this? Right. So I, I think we got lucky as well. Uh, and I think it, it's a very, you know, negative concept to talk about it this way. But the pandemic did help to speed everything up. So we invest uh, almost exclusively within the data, AI, and enterprise software sectors, enterprise SaaS. So these are all enabling technologies to enable this digital transformation. And while business leaders were already talking about it prior to COVID, COVID really just changed the game. It, it changed the entire fabric of how businesses are, are being built today. And I think the other thing that happened is that the complexities of data and AI infrastructure today 
are is changing too fast. It, it it's not just complex; it's also very dynamic. Yeah. So when you're trying to build this in house, you know every good engineer will tell you that you know there's nothing they can't build. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. But the problem is time is not something that these businesses who traditionally relied on time to market relied on building skill at a very low profit margins. They need that speed, and they can't keep up internally anymore. So that's why a lot of these businesses, and the biggest ones actually, we see are actually reaching out to external parties to really help them bridge that speed gap to trade time for for money. Yeah. So this is a this is not a fully formed thought of mine. So just bear with me for a second. If you're developing the same business, and I'm just going to use the United States as a proxy for outside of Taiwan, right? Your market size potentially, from a sales perspective, is just so much bigger, and you have a proximity advantage to just contacting many more companies at one time, or even over a period of time, even if it's a condensed、mm-hmm. period of time. How do you get edge if you're building a company in Taiwan, but if you're enterprise SaaS, your internal, so your domestic companies to test that product on? Mm-hmm. Is just smaller. So statistically, again, if you use conversion rates of two to three percent, you got to go to a hundred people to get two or three people to work with you. How do you get past that conversion problem and get edge so that then you can go out and do enterprise sales to the rest of the world? Did that make sense? Yes, totally. So it really scalability is about how you can replicate your success over and over again, right?、Yeah. And then maybe in more more sectors and more. So I think our recipe or our playbook is to focus on. Businesses where there are large enough with global footprint,、yep. but they're headquartered here, and there aren't that many industries where where Taiwan has companies that falls under that that category, right? But we've got Foxconn, we've got Wistron, Pegatron, we've got TSMC,、yep. AMC, UMC, and all these guys, right?、Yep. So so these are examples, but so really Taiwan is just great for that incubation when it comes, especially within the Uh, industry 4.0 or you know manufacturing automation. I think we're great at that. Now, what we aren't you know evidently good at yet is building the end applications for many different things, right? So, in for for end applications where a lot of Southeast Asian money has been pouring into, so e-commerce, logistics, or you know AI in fintech, AI in healthcare.、Right. There's a lot of that, but we call it the end applications because you're enabling that one thing, that last mile of、yeah. what you want to build. But that bit, it's so culturally nuanced. Southeast Asia is not one country; it's extremely fragmented, with basically no two economies speaking the same language. Malayu and Bahasa Indonesia are exactly the same, right? So,、no. so it, it is, and it's so culturally nuanced that in the United States, it's generally more homogeneous, right? right. And and so building for the United States, you know, you can avert that cultural nuance. But in Southeast Asia, you gotta understand that, and that's not where Taiwan, with twenty four million people, really prevails in. So it's about experimenting here. Creating that edge that we have and replicating, like I said, in Asia, we are still largely manufacturing as a a core economic、uh, pillar. We're a more blue collar economy as compared to the U.S., and that's where Taiwan similarity might prevail when it comes to Southeast Asia. And and again, this is a generalized question, but do you get the sense? And you mentioned a couple of these companies, right? That Hanhai and TSMC feel a bit of a sort of 
uncle-style responsibility to good startups, not just every startup, right? To the good ones to say, you definitely come and test with us. Maybe we have a sandbox where you can test to help promote the ecosystem in Taiwan. Is that fair? So I, I think there is a little of both, depending on which company specifically you're talking about. Yeah. But uh, I think Terry Coe, he he's got a bit of that big brother mentality. Okay. But at the end of the day, it, it, you know, they're dealing with billions of GMV, right? Sure, so sure. so sandbox. Some companies do have that sandbox, but some companies are really just looking for solutions right now, and they're willing. I think what's most gratifying is that these large conglomerates, these big, you know, behemoths, are willing to really get together with our startups. We've put our portfolio and others in front of the key executives, including Terrico, uh, at Hanghai, at Foxconn, in a room to really talk about how your manufacturing can move on to the next step. We've done that with Honghai. We've done that with Catcher. We've done that with many of these manufacturing and now in financials as well. So they are. And I think that mentality has opened up. Whether or not is really just for the greater good of, you know, helping out the startups, not all of them are. But I think, you know, no matter what the original agenda was, I think there is progress and that's helping. That's a huge help for startups here. Yeah, I think so. And like we said, you said 24 million, I said 25. Again, it's a push, right? But Taiwan is a very special country, just historically. And I do think that the people that have built companies there, Terry goes a good example, understand the reason why these startups need to be there to perpetuate what's already been built and built these multinational companies, these other behemoths from scratch again so that that can be perpetuated into the future for the next generation of Taiwanese people. Can you talk in more general terms about just artificial intelligence and how data is getting used? You know, I like to talk about transforming the landscape of business, but how, how do you think that fits into both your investment thesis, but also how you see what's happening today and how it's going to happen in the future? Okay, so, so there are so many things going on all at the same time. So when it comes to uh, data, when it comes to, to artificial intelligence within an enterprise, it's an entire fabric of sensors, networking, uh, and then the data, data systems from your warehouses, pipelines, whatnot. And then finally, just to get data from its original source, the multiple endpoints to the people who need it the most, who, who want to use it say a business analyst, a data scientist, or just a CEO who wants to know his revenues by the second, right? So, so there's an entire fabric of this, but I think from a very internet company perspective, these are all very intuitive. And you think that we have all of that and that, that we, I used to have the notion that because in MarTech and AdTech, the transactions per seconds that our systems were built in that I've built are the fastest of any industry. NASDAQ would tell you that their systems were built by ad tech professionals because finance doesn't move as fast as advertising, right? So when we're dealing with that hundreds and thousands of millions of transactions per second, and now we're like, this is the offline world. How can manufacturing be faster than us? And then we went into the offices of AU Optronics, Wistron, and Foxconn, and we realized, oh my God, yeah. they're not only in the almost the same level of complexity, but they're dealing with a bigger problem. You're trying to move offline to online. So many things have to be moving all simultaneously. 5G, 
Uh, and, and that's moving very, very fast. That's one of our focuses as well. And then enabling that connectivity just so that data from the offline world can start moving onto cloud if it needs to be to be processed and developing the artificial intelligence. But we were not talking about, you know, robots taking over the world or, you know, robots conducting surgery for us in an autonomous way. We're just talking about very simply automation of a lot of different business units that can be just simply more efficient and alleviating, you know, a lot of, uh, human worker pain points and that automation alone, we looked at ASEAN as a whole is expecting that there will be over 1 trillion US dollars of investments over the next five to 10 years, just in upgrading industries itself. US is projecting about $5 trillion uh, in that. And the entire output of that in the US, they're expecting a 5% increase in GDP from just investing in, in automation today. So we're not talking about sci-fi, we're just talking about what the average person would imagine the industry, the industries have already progressed to. In reality, it's really not there yet. So no, um, that that's where we believe that the biggest amount of uh, investment will go into uh, the sector in Asia. Whenever I think about automation, again, because I lived in Japan for so long, I can't get this company, FANUC or FANUC, depending on how you pronounce it, which stands for Factory Automation and Numeric Controls, yes. out of my head, because they have, they have factories at the base of Mount Fuji that they won't let anybody inside of, right, without like military-grade mm -hmm. clearance, because they have robots building robots that are designing robots to build robots. And this scares a lot of people. I'm exaggerating, obviously, to make a point. But it is heavily automated. And... I'm on record as saying, and I don't know what your opinion is, that we're not going to live in a robot apocalypse. It's just not going to happen. And over time, what we found during these transitions from whether it's agrarian economy to a manufacturing economy to a knowledge economy to an automation economy, the transition periods are always really tough. I think this one's actually going to be faster than all the previous ones because it's happening so fast. Right over, Before, it would happen over a 30, 40 year period of time. And it's just painful. But I think humans have reached the point, and I think, as, as you said, the pandemic has highlighted this. There's a whole bunch of jobs that people don't want to do. Exactly. And they're happy to have a robot or just some sort of automated process. Let's just say, let's not talk about robots, but an automated process, do it for them, right? And, and a lot of this is just repetitive work that, you know, at, at all different levels of education is just not meaningful type of work exactly. or that it is, you know, unhealthy. So there, there's a lot that can be automated simply to alleviate human problems and not yeah. replace human jobs. Right. And, and I think that on its own is, is highly valuable and that's where it'll start. Yeah. And that level of productivity should unlock a whole bunch of other economic activity, which should in some way, shape or form, and we can argue about what it should take, create more leisure for humans and just better lives and lifestyles for people. <laughs> But I don't want to talk politics with you. I'm curious about if you ever get concerned, if you and your team ever get concerned about what I'll call investment myopia. Mm -hmm. In the sense that you're operating in a market, like you said, with 24 million people. It's an island. So by definition, connectivity to other places, physical connectivity to other places is just relatively harder, not hard per se. But do you worry that you see companies in Taiwan and then a similar company is getting built in Singapore and California, and you're going to miss that because you're so close to the ones that are there. 
we, we, we're afraid of so many things <laughs> on a day-to-day -day basis, afraid of not knowing enough about everything. Uh, <laughs> It, it, it's horrific. So I, I didn't mean to stress you out. I was just, a, was a, was a genuinely, <laughs> but, I'm genuinely interested in this and I'll tell you why in a second, but go ahead. Yes, but, but, but definitely. I think, I, I think it's our job as, as investors, sure. as board members and partners to our portfolio to also help them see beyond the borders of today and beyond the borders of Taiwan. That's entirely our funds mandate. So in order to fix that, I, I think there are a few things, right? We, we no longer live in a silo. Uh, there's so much information about the best practices, about what's going on everywhere in Southeast Asia and in the U.S. I think a lot more quality journalism and informational channels are helping us understand more and more beyond the borders. Yeah, I hear the Asia Tech podcast what? is really good for that, but I, exactly. I hear the guy who does it's a bit of a jerk. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think I've been hugely enjoyed all your previous uh, previous interviews of oh, stop VCs and startups too. But I think I think we, we no longer sit in die silo. That's one. But two, simultaneously, uh, we're working with a lot of funds elsewhere to help us, you know, piece up what's going on in Japan, what's happening in the front lines of data infrastructure in the U.S. and early stage pre-seed in in Singapore and Indonesia. So. That's the beauty. I mean, coming from the operator background to, to VC industry, I realized there are no competitors, real competitors in a VC space. You don't really compete. Not really. Uh, right. There might be some competition, I would say, but but it, it's more collaborative. You could be competing on one deal on a day and then co-investing on other deals tomorrow, right? So, so there's so much and so much information being shared across our networks that we think we know some bit, but I'm still guessing it's the tip of the iceberg. So we'd love to hear more. The distance from Singapore to Thailand is about 1,800 kilometers, right? And it's about 3,100 from Taiwan to Singapore. Mm -hmm. Do you ever consider like maybe just being closer to Southeast Asia physically, still investing in Taiwan stuff, but like flying back and forth on a regular basis? And let's pretend the pandemic is over and the life again. Yeah, I was gonna say. So I was born and raised in Singapore, and my wife is still a hundred percent Malaysian. So Southeast Asia is actually home. Singapore is that one country in the world I've spent the most. Right. of my life in so yeah. so far uh and prior to starting hive used to travel to singapore every month or yeah. bang and bangkok as well i would spend half my time in bangkok so southeast asia is really you know a home uh, to us and we have been one starting from about a year ago we've been actively engaging with the southeast asian community trying to learn more about it yep. specifically singapore and thailand and uh we want to continue to engage that and for fun too, our, our upcoming fun, we are looking at more uh, presence in Southeast Asia. And hopefully the, the pandemic uh, comes around and uh, vaccine travel lanes are you know, opening up that we can resume that some type of uh, frequency uh, once a month or once a quarter with uh, Southeast Asia. Okay. And I've got one more question for you before I let you go. A little bit off topic. I watch companies like Thrasio, right? T-H-R-A-S.io in the United States and Una Brands in Singapore raising what I think the technical term is a bucket load of money. <laughs> well, Thrasio just, just announced that they raised another billion dollars. And basically what they're doing is they're trying to consolidate the e-commerce world by buying brands and then scaling those brands 
bigger. Do you have a view on this business at all? I think in a sense, Hive, we are, we operate in, in a similar way, right? We're, we're taking very early stage companies and with networks, ecosystems and, and skill sets, trying to scale them globally and, and, and just make that into a much bigger play than possible. So, so I think it's not that different from how venture builders or investors work in. Obviously, I'm sure Thrasil has a very doctrinated, you know, 10 steps to success as dogmatic way of doing that. I'm pretty sure uh, they do, right? Yes, but but I think I think in, in the consumer space, there is definitely that that secret recipe. Less in the early investment stage, but but I'm sure there are some uh, models that you can replicate. Rocket fuel, uh, Rocket has done a great job at that in the early days as well. So uh, it's not surprising. Bucket loads of cash is probably what you will need uh, in order to replicate that over and over again globally. Yeah. Okay, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I love this conversation. Hopefully, you had as much fun as I did. Yan Li, I did. Founder and managing partner at Hive Ventures. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this today. Thanks a lot, Michael. This was great fun. Speak to you soon.